Hi there, you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast with your host, me, Simon Drew. If you'd like to listen to over 200 episodes that were recorded before 2020, then you can head to my Patreon site. It's patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew. We'd love to have you there and any support is greatly appreciated. We'd love to also have you on our Facebook community, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But for now, enjoy the show. Hi there, my name's Simon Drew and welcome to The Practical Stoic Podcast. Now, I've got a great guest for you on the show today. His name is Gregory Lopez. And uh, Greg has been on the show with Massimo Pigliucci before because uh, they recently wrote a book called A Handbook for New Stoics, an excellent book. I couldn't recommend it more. I will put the links in the show notes. Uh, but, you know, we wanted to get him on the show, just me and Greg, uh, to have a discussion mostly about uh, Stoic logic uh, and also some of uh, some conversation about Epictetus's kind of training method. Um, we also discussed aligning with nature and even some stuff to do with the coronavirus, which is kind of why uh, I wanted to release this episode today uh, ahead of some of the episodes that I've got in my archives, uh, just because there is some some topical kind of uh, content there. But um, it was such an interesting discussion. He's such an incredibly knowledgeable person uh, to talk to about stoicism and philosophy in general and just blew my mind in so many levels. So I'm I'm so grateful that uh, Greg came on the show and we're going to have him back many more times. But uh, I'll tell you a little bit about Greg and then we'll get straight into the interview. So Gregory Lopez, he's the co-author, as I said, of A Handbook for New Stoics. Uh, He's the founder of the New York City Stoics, the co-founder and board member of the Stoic Fellowship. He is on the Modern Stoicism team and co-facilitates Stoic Camp New York with Massimo Pigliucci. So he's very integrated within the Stoic community. Uh, He is also the lead editor for Examine.com and editor-in-chief of the Nutrition Examination Research Digest. So uh, this guy is knowledgeable. He's got the right information. And uh, and I'm going to put all of the links to where you can find him in the show notes below. So make sure you get over there, reach out to him, let him know how much you appreciated this interview. And without any further ado, I present to you Gregory Lopez. Awesome. So we have none other than Gregory Lopez with us today. Now, Greg, just to set the scene, uh, I have heard from more than one person within the Stoic community uh, that you might be one of the people within the community around the world who understands Stoicism uh, more than anyone, right? And 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 I've I've seriously heard some some raving reviews about you. And you know, obviously, I've had you on the show with Massimo uh, a few months back, and and that was a wonderful conversation. But I'm really excited to sit down with you today, just yourself, so that you can spread your wings and 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 tell us what you know about Stoicism. But I want to give you an opportunity to tell everybody a little bit more about who you are and then maybe set the scene for what we had planned to talk about today. Great. Well, thank you for having me on, Simon. I really appreciate it. Um, So I am the founder of New York City Stoics, which is just a meetup group. We kind of meet and discuss things and we run two parallel groups. We run a practice group, which is closed for most of the year, but is open to enrollment each and every year. And also I run a parallel reading group where we just kind of read stuff and talk about it in terms of themes. This year's theme is a year of Cicero and we're reading um, a biography of Cicero, which we just finished. And now we're getting into some of uh, Cicero's works. Um, and we're going to be seeing his perspective on stoicism, academic skepticism, and Epicureanism to some extent. So um, I got into stoicism because I had some kind of a bit of a volunteer ethos to start and volunteered for a great organization that taught cognitive behavior therapy um, to people with addictive behaviors and became president of that organization. And I always had an underlying background interest in philosophy and took a couple of courses in college. But when I started learning more about cognitive behavior therapy, what I found out was that it was influenced to a large degree by the ancient philosophy of Stoicism. And I had a pretty big gap in my knowledge of philosophy. The Hellenistic period was kind of skimmed over in my philosophical education. So I decided to go check it out. And I found at the time that there were people who were actually trying to bring Stoicism into the modern world. And this was probably in around 2009, 2010 area. Uh, So, People like the new Stoa, which is currently uh, in the form of the Stoic Registry, um, where you can register yourself as a Stoic if you'd like um, to this day. Um, And 
other people like Keith Seddon, who uh, wrote Stoic Serenity, which is a book that actually was used to be a correspondence course where you actually like corresponded via mail um, in order to learn Stoicism, but a lot of it was remote. And one of the key features of Stoicism is to be a little more social with other people. So I, after being somewhat disillusioned with interactions on the internet in the form of social media and stuff, um, I decided to form New York City Stoics in order to have an in-person group in order to learn Stoicism. I also coupled with that with the fact that I knew if I held myself accountable to other people by having to facilitate a group on a given topic, I would be more likely to actually learn it myself. So that's how I kind of got started. And then things kind of took up from there. Um, Massimo Picolucci, whose work I was familiar with in the skeptic circles, um, came to my meetup one day uh, and we started collaborating and we formed a yearly stoic camp where we got an idea um, from uh, Stoic Camp Wyoming was the first stoic camp ever and that's still ongoing as well and we decided to copy that format and bring it to New York and so we've been running a yearly stoic camp and through running that we started excavating the ancient Stoic literature for practical exercises. And we took a look around at the Stoic literature, which there's quite a bit nowadays, and we saw that very few, if any of them, were really dedicated to Stoic practice. So we decided to co-author what is called in the United States a Handbook for New Stoics, and um, which was published last year. And we uh, it's been going pretty well so far. I've been running my practice group now. I'm actually working through the book myself. Uh, and due to the current uh, situations, I'm in New York City currently and restaurants will be closing for only for takeout as of tomorrow. And I'm currently on the practice of trying to um, work with food and eat simpler stuff. So I think uh, fate has handed me something that may make that, that week's practice a little bit easier. So that yeah. is me in a nutshell, I believe. I love it. Thanks so much for sharing all that, Greg. And, and obviously you're doing great work all around the world and your reputation, uh, despite the fact that you might not be spending so much time on social media and places like that, your reputation is spreading around the world uh, just because of uh, how, uh, I guess, the respect that you give to this philosophy and to your study of philosophy in general. I think that's, that's something we can all aspire to. Uh, and so, I think that what would be really interesting for us today, I've, I've heard from a lot of people that you really do understand uh, stoic logic better than most people. Uh, and, and so for myself, I think it'd be so good if we could, uh, we could start with basically a definition of what even you know, logic is. Um, cause there's obviously going to be a lot of people out there who are just getting into this philosophy, um, or philosophy in general. And then once we've kind of defined what logic is, maybe we could define why it was important to the Stoics and then, uh, you know, have a discussion around how the Stoics kind of thought about life, if, if that's okay. Yeah, that sounds good to me. So, um, so logic is part of a threefold curriculum that the ancient Stoics taught in order to train ultimately as Stoics. And they actually didn't invent this curriculum. They kind of inherited, inherited it from the Aristotelian and Platonic traditions where philosophy was carved up into certain bits in order to study. And so the three main philosophical topics that the Stoics studied were physics, ethics, and logic. And so logic is one of those three. And all of those things mean something a little different from what they mean today. And they all tend to be a little broader as well, I would say. So starting with physics, physics is kind of the general study of nature or the world around us pretty much. Um, and it also included in the ancient Stoa things like theology, understanding God and your relationship to God, as well as what things are made of and things like that. Um, and so that was physics. Then there's ethics, which is kind of what people focus on and think of when they think of Stoicism overall. But ethics actually doesn't necessarily mean shaking your finger and saying what's right or wrong in terms of action. Instead, it's a focus on uh, character. Ethos is uh, the Greek actually for character for the most part. So, um, what, so what this is, is kind of how to 
build one's character. Um, and the third area is logic. And so logic has a much broader meaning than we mean nowadays. Generally nowadays, logic means formal systems in order to deduce theorems. Um, whereas in the ancient time, it included this, although the ancients tended to call this part of logic dialectic. And you'll see this sometimes in Marcus Aurelius, he talks about dialectic and also occasionally Epictetus, they talk about dialectic. And dialectic is kind of logic as we mean it today for the most part. But logic also consisted of how to speak. Um, the word logic is related to logos. And if anybody's familiar with the Christian tradition in the book of John, the book of John starts off in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Mm. So what's this word thing? Well, it's logos. And so John is actually borrowing from the Greek tradition that was, he was kind of ensconced in and um, using, presenting this to the Christian audience. And this logos, this word has, it's hard to translate and we may not want to get too much into it, but it's, it's both like our discourse, how we speak about things. And so logic, the Stoic study of logic had to do in large part with um, what we call rhetoric nowadays and also philosophy of language, how words work and what they do. Um, there's also kind of reasoning skills involved and then more formal logic as well. So logic is more around words and it is also somewhat related to psychology, I would say too, since a lot of the material that we do our reasoning on are psychological phenomena that come up to us. So logic in the stoic sense is a lot broader than how we use it today but logic as we mean it today was still an extremely important part of early stoicism mm. yeah so i've been really trying to think about this lately and i'm so glad that you brought up that that passage from the bible about god was the word right because i that's been something that's been on my mind for about two and a half weeks now really trying to think about like what that means because if you think about it it if you cut humanity back to the most basic element, the reason why we are able to even think about any of these things is because we first found a word and then we created another one and then came up with some questions and some more questions. And, and I mean, it, at the end that that is really how we're able to even understand the world around us. Right. And, and I've been thinking about this because I really think that those three stoic disciplines can kind of, uh, be broken down into three questions about life, right? It's like physics is, okay, what is all of this and what's my place in it? Um, you know, ethics is kind of, okay, well, how should I act? What should my character be um, now that I know what my place in this thing is? And then the logic, could that kind of be described as how you know if you're even thinking correctly or how, how, you, how you know that you're making the right choice? Yeah, how you know, I think full stop is a useful yeah. way to think about it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the Stoics had a few different metaphors for how these things cohered to each other. Um, I guess my favorite one is probably that of the fence and the field. So um, one of the metaphors of how these relate to each other is that logic is a fence that fences off a part of a field where you're going to grow crops. And so the crops grow in soil and that's physics. And what sprouts out of it is the crop that you're ultimately going to harvest, and that's ethics. And mm. so, in so in terms of this metaphor, then the fence protects the field; it makes sure ethics can grow, so that um, so that weeds don't come in, and so animals don't come and graze things. So um, it protects your crop, in essence. And so, it, logic serves as a protective way to make sure that you could cultivate your field properly. But your field can only grow out of the uh, high. You, what your field yields ultimately depends on what's in the soil. And so you need to understand the basics of the world around you or else you can't know how to live your life if you don't understand at least the basics of how the world works and one's relationship to it. That doesn't mean nowadays that one has to go and study uh, string theory or anything like that in order to become a Stoic, but having a basic idea of what's going on in the world and our best understanding of it can be useful. But you can't have an understanding of either of those things unless you hone your skills of reasoning. The Stoics thought that we were had two fundamental things that made us human beings. The first is that we're social animals meaning quite a few things. First of all, we just tend to do better when we 
work together for the most part. So we're defenseless on our own and exile in ancient times was pretty much, uh, pretty much a death sentence for all, at least for a lot of people because it's hard mm. to live completely on one's own. But not only that, our brains seem to be built so that we crave some kind of human interaction. I mean, I'm an introvert. It doesn't mean that I want to go out and talk to everybody all the time. I find it draining, but at the same time, I, I still find it rewarding to some degree. So like um, we have this craving and this craving you can see it in a lot of human interactions. You can see it in the damage that uh, isolation um, causes to people when like they're put in prison in solitary confinement. You can see it in the propensity to gossip and talk about other people. If you focus on what normal conversation is often like, it's often around other people. If I'm going to talk about stoicism. I may talk about Zeno and Chrysippus and all those people, but I'm talking about other people and what they did and how they lived their lives. So we can see, and we can see that we kind of, a lot of us have this craving for social interaction. So that's the first thing that makes human beings human, according to the Stoics. But the second thing is that we're rational creatures, that we're capable of reasoning well, abstractly, um, to a higher degree than other animals. And this is one of the things that characterizes us as being human. And so working on one's logic and reasoning skills in the process, pretty much by definition, the Stoics would say, actually makes us more human. Mm, yeah. No, I love that. And and I think it would be really good to discuss how these two kind of uh, human needs or, or uh, human definitions uh, would relate to us in our current situation, right? I know we wanted to kind of dive a little bit into, um, you know, how we should be acting in this time of crisis, which is, um, you, you know, there's, there's a lot of information flowing around. Uh, there's a lot of panic going around. Uh, what can the stoic definition of what a human is and what we need help us uh, or how can it help us to act in the best way possible in a time like now where we're dealing with such uh, such chaotic experiences around the world? So the simple answer is to, I mean, Epictetus, um, the slave turned stoic teacher had a threefold training in order to train his students in stoicism. And that's the format of the book that Masamun my book is based upon it's called the three disciplines and his second of the three disciplines the discipline of action gives a kind of recipe for um, going forward and knowing how to act and the first and main thing to keep in mind is trying to fulfill your role as a human being in all circumstances mm -hmm. and to never sacrifice it and so what that means in practice is when thinking about how to act one should ideally never sacrifice one's rationality and prosociality and so what this can do is help rule out and possibly rule in certain forms of action. So for instance, in the current shutdown that many cities are facing around COVID-19, uh, one uh, like a, a thought that initially crossed my mind is like, why should I care really about this? It's not a big deal. Like uh, the death rate is relatively low and I'm in a low risk group. Okay, um, so maybe I shouldn't, but then, I thought about it a little more clearly and realized that I'm in constant contact with people who are in high risk groups. Furthermore, if I go and I'm careless and uh, infect, I infect the 2.5 people who I'm prone to infect through the current epidemiological models, and then those people infect more people and more people, my action would have rippled out and harmed people and gotten to people who would have been more vulnerable. And so this mix, this kind of reasoning mixes prosociality and reasoning. Um, so firstly, I want to point out that the thought came to my mind, like, I shouldn't care about it. And um, there are plenty of reasons why I'm not a sage and I'm a bad human being, but having the initial thought is not one of them. The initial thoughts aren't in one's control. Um, mm -hmm. The stoic practice comes up in trying to work with it. It's like, ah, okay, there's the thought. I don't really need to care about this. But let me reason that through. Do I not? Well, if I want to be more pro-social and I want to try to practice stoicism, then the, this will have negative consequences for other people. And I should reason those through. Maybe, you know, maybe the epidemiological models are wrong, though, as a base rate, I should probably trust the experts since I don't know as much about this. So based on what the experts are saying um, and based on the fact that there are a lot of people who are vulnerable, who I'm in immediate contact with, and if not immediate, it can spread out, I should do my best to practice uh, safe hygiene and minimize my exposure to people and also, you know, get 
enough to take care of my immediate environment, but not like hoard toilet paper because you know I could take a shower at the end of the day if I need to. <laughs> toilet paper, toilet paper is nice, but it's not a necessity. We have some newspaper and stuff. I have some books behind me, you know, so <laughs> I can manage. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll start with the fiction, um, but yeah. then go on. Um, but you know, like so, I could do a little bit to take care of myself, but I don't need to panic and become completely selfish in order to do it. So that's kind of stoic reasoning in a nutshell and how reasoning things through based on the best evidence. Notice there, I trust the experts too. I don't necessarily know a whole lot about this. I'm actually, my day job is uh, taking a look at uh, the evidence base for nutritional supplements. I am the editor-in-chief for one of the major products for examine.com and I'm trained as a pharmacist so I actually do know a little bit about medicine um, and that's primarily what I do but um, still I don't know much about epidemiology um, so I should still trust the experts and plus what the experts are saying coheres with what I know so doing all these reasonable checks makes me fulfill my role as a human being by trying to exercise my brain instead of just saying ah danger I need to protect myself um, because that's just a knee-jerk reaction and that's putting myself as a victim of circumstance and as a reasonable being who wants to be more free and self-actualizing I'd like to act against that when I can and when I can catch myself which is not all the time but that's why it's a practice yeah 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 no I, I think that's spot on hey and I really appreciate uh, the the, the definition of it's it's not about that initial thought that's that simply will happen that's a natural part of human beings and it will always happen and that doesn't make you a sage or not what what really differentiates you from other people is your ability to in that moment pause for a second and say okay well what's the most rational choice and I'm even thinking back to last weekend I, when things were really started starting to amp up. I was, I was about to head out. I, I had planned to go and spend some time with a musician friend of mine. We were going to plan an album coming up and, you know, we're, we're really excited to sit down for a few hours and watch some concerts and get some good notes. And um, as is often the case, my wife tended to be the voice of reason in my own head. And <laughs> she was kind of like, well, you know, do you really think that? And it was annoying to me because for, for about an hour or so, I was kind of like, oh, I just really want to go over there. But at the end of the day, I had to make that decision based off, you know, if, if I, if everybody did what I'm about to do, how quickly would things descend into chaos or how quickly would they not? Right. And, and, and so you kind of have to think like that, right. Um, about, listen, if everybody is about to do what I'm about to do, is this going to be a good thing for everyone? And at a situation like this, we really need to be, uh, extremely hyper rational uh, in our responses to how we think about these sorts of things. But you mentioned the three disciplines of Epictetus and, and the second one was action. Can we talk about the, the triad there and exactly uh, the process that one might go through to, I don't know, be disciplined like, like Epictetus? Yeah. So in short, the three disciplines were a uh, three, I would say three step, um, training program laid forth by Epictetus that one progresses through. And I would not say I'm 100% certain about this because there's a lot to be, that's, there's a lot that's missing from the discourses and we can't know for certain what Epictetus's curriculum really was, but I think that's his, my interpretation is where the evidence leans at least. So Epictetus starts off with what um, the French scholar Pierre Hadot called the discipline of desire. Epictetus just calls the, these, um, the three areas which one should be trained in, or the topics, the topoi. Um, he doesn't call them the three disciplines, nor does he really name them, but he constantly brings them up and says what they're in relation to. So I'm using the French scholar Pierre Hadot's names for them. So the first is the discipline of desire. And the goal of this is to essentially do two things. It's to first actually work more with your aversions, what you want to get away from, and try to move those aversions off of things that are external to you. And this is what's most famous in Stoicism. When people who haven't heard much about Stoicism start off uh, learning it, they, they think Stoicism is all about the dichotomy of control and trying to be resilient. And that's actually only the first step. Um, it's not all of Stoicism. And it actually, if people just take that to be all of Stoicism, um, it's not, they may actually wind up in a worse place than a better place. Um, because if you just become resilient, that's not necessarily going to make people or the world 
a better place overall. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, you want, you know, if you're, if you like torturing people and the screams of your victims bothers you and then you become more resilient and you're like, thanks stoicism, their cries no longer bother <laughs> me. I'm resilient. Eh, well, if, if that's how a lot, of, a lot of people interpret stoicism to just become resilient. Um, and that's just the first step. So, but it is the most important according to Epictetus, but he says it for a very specific reason. So, the discipline of desire and aversion is to make sure you get a you lower your aversions to external things, um, and so this is the kind of things that people talk about. So you expose yourself to discomfort. So you try to give things up, and you work with your mental reactions along the way. It's not just giving them up begrudgingly and saying I'm a stoic. This sucks, but I'm still stoic because I got I'm a minimalist, even though I'm kind of grumpy about it. Or God, this cold shower sucks. I hope it ends. Okay, it's done. I'm a stoic now. Um, you actually try to put yourself in the situations in order to try to work with your mentality and your your impressions along the way. So you try to reduce aversions to external things. And in the interim, you also try to increase aversions to internal things. And what this means is essentially caring about your reactions, saying, wow, I'm really valuing things that are outside of my control. That sucks. And, you know, maybe even like shaming, not shaming yourself really, but saying, getting motivated that you want to change your reactions to things, not the things themselves. And so that's the part of the training. And Epictetus says, Epictetus says that um, summarizes this by saying you transfer your versions from externals to internals, meaning you stop worrying about what's going on outside and start worrying about what's going on inside. Then you also reduce your desires for externals. Um, and that's the entire training. And so like, so you try to pay less attention to getting material things and things like that. And so all the stoic exercises that a lot of people are familiar with is kind of aimed to doing those three things, increasing uh, aversions to your internal reactions and trying to change them, decreasing aversions to externals, and decreasing desires for externals. Now, there's an asymmetry here. Why aren't you increasing desires for your internals? And Epictetus actually gives an answer to this, I believe in Enchiridion 1. He said, and he says, because people who aren't well trained in the discipline of desire aren't ready yet. They don't, they, they're not ready yet to desire what should be desired. So, what should be desired then? Well, the answer to that lies in the second discipline, which is the discipline of action. And what's to be desired is to become a, improve one's character um, and mm. in order to become a more rational and pro-social human being. The discipline of action has a kind of algorithm that allows you to choose actions based on your human role as well as what you're particularly well suited for. And so after you get better at your desires and aversions to externals in the first discipline, you then move on to wanting to become a better person. And so the reason to become resilient in stoicism is not so if your startup goes under, you can make a new startup and make get rich a different way, or um, to become like super buff because the gym's hard, but you want to become even more like more built. Um, it's none of that. It's instead to clear the way to make you a better person. So Epictetus gives an example of this, which is kind of involves puppies. Um, and it's one of my favorite examples. I may have brought it up on the last uh, time. So forgive me if it's a repeat, but for those of you who haven't uh, heard it before, um, Epictetus said is, so the Stoics had these series of things called paradoxes, which literally means going against uh, common belief. It's not a paradox nowadays, like what's the sound of one hand clapping or something like that. It just means going against common belief, things that would make people pause and say, what the hell are you talking about? Um, and one of the paradoxes is only the Stoic sage, the true friend. Mm -hmm. um, and Epictetus in one of the discourses brought this up and a student said, uh, excuse me, Mr. Epictetus, but that's bullshit. I have plenty of friends. Um, and I'm oh, sorry if I, I don't know if I can curse or not here, but. Oh uh, yeah, you definitely can. Okay. Okay. Fuck yeah. Good. Um, so, <laughs> so, uh, so, so Epictetus is like, yeah, you're kind of like friends, but you're like puppies. And the student is like, wow, that sounds great to me. Puppies are adorable, right? And he's like, well, sort of. I mean, you have the puppies in a pen and they're all playing together and they look all nice and happy and they're cute and yapping. But, you know, if they're a little hungry and you throw in a piece of meat, that's going to be enough to turn them on each other. Those once friendly puppies that are adorable and out snipping at each other and biting each other's ears in order to get to the meat. And that's because they desire externals, the meat and not being hungry above being friendly to each other. So no, you can't really be a friend and anything that a non-sage calls a friend is contingent on you being comfortable enough 
on you being things being just right so that now you can love the person or now you can be a friend so you know you can love your children as long as they obey you you can love your parents as long as they keep you in their will but you know if those conditions which are outside of your control change then you're going to change with them and the main point of the discipline of desire is to reduce the chances of that happening to be a friend or a lover or husband or child or parent full stop and not have your desires get in the way. So that's the discipline of desires relationship to the discipline of action, the second one. Mm. Finally, there's the third discipline, which is most closely related to stoic logic. And the third discipline does not tackle anything different than the first two. It still works on actions and it still works on um, desires and aversions. What it does is it does it at a much closer level and it's uh, the path to sagehood in a sense. So once you get good enough in desire and aversion and action, you then move on to the discipline of ascent where you take a look at your psychological reactions immediately and try to hold them and catch them quickly and counter them. So it requires more fine-grained detail to one's immediate reactions and also one can bring those the presuppositions underlying your first impressions to things to bear and actually use logic in order to inspect them and see if they hold water. And that is the discipline of ascent. And Epictetus said that he would be happy if he died, not a sage, but merely being able to practice the discipline of ascent. So even Epictetus said, like, this is really the, the, the path to sagehood and not everybody gets there. It's an advanced thing. So those are the three disciplines in a nutshell. Man, that was amazing and i really i really appreciate you going into the level of detail that you did because that is uh it, it's just a really interesting way to look at stoicism as as a whole picture of this is exactly how you go through the steps right to in order and that uh, that whole idea of actually working on yourself before you start to even try to become a better person right essentially like tightening the screws you know sharpening the axe as uh, as abraham lincoln might have said uh, can can you talk to people about maybe the first steps that they would need to take in order to build that groundwork in order to to move forward onto the action side of things? Like if somebody's just getting into stoicism, what's the first exercise that you give them? Oof, well, that's a tough question because I actually disagree. I'm kind of working on some stuff now that may be related to that because as it stands now, the first exercise that's often given is like the uh, dichotomy of control. So mm. just say what's in your control, what's not in your control. Um, and so that is useful in general and extends throughout uh, at least the discipline of desire and definitely the discipline of ascent um, and to some extent the discipline of action too. So it is fundamental, um, but, and there's, so it is useful. And there's, yeah, I would probably say like just using that as a good first step, except there's a problem that comes up and that's kind of some of the stuff that I'm working on currently, uh, or at least thinking about working on. I haven't gotten that far yet. Um, but there's a problem that I saw come up quite a few times in my practice group and also um, recently on the uh, Stoic Philosophy Facebook group um, where somebody says, I try to apply the, 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 the Stoic fork, the dichotomy of control. And yeah, so I know that this isn't in my control, but that doesn't make me feel better. Um, and this is a common thing. And I think the problem with this is that people are starting to practice the discipline of desire without really a exploring what's really worth pursuing in life on pen and paper, theoretically sitting down and thinking through it clearly and B learning enough good reasoning techniques to be able to think through the question clearly. And I think this is an essential missing component that was in Epictetus's training program, was probably in the early Stoics training program that the modern Stoic movement is not focused on. It's just like jump right in, like you're, in, you're suffering. Suffering is caused by desiring external things, apply the fork, um, apply the dichotomy of control. You do that and then you're like, maybe it helps a little bit, maybe it doesn't. Um, but I would think that it probably doesn't work for a, the people it doesn't work for because at their root, they don't even necessarily believe that virtue really is a, the only good or at least a higher good than externals. So yeah, you can tell yourself this, but why tell yourself things you don't believe? And that brings up the utility of logic and reasoning um, because one of the reasons I got into stoicism was because of their respect for reasoning. If stoicism said, eh, just believe this stuff and do it and it'll work, I may be less prone to actually want to pursue it because I value, I see the inherent value of reason, both practically and theoretically. It allows me to get 
to true beliefs more clearly, and it also allows me to take more efficient action more clearly. And it just so happens that Stoicism actually values it well. That's why you have the discipline of assent, and that's why you have the discipline of action um, in order to try to think things through more clearly. So what I would suggest the first thing people do is, is to sit down and think about what they want out of life or what they want their life to be like. To sit down and take the ancient view of ethics, the kind of starting question. There's a great essay um, by Julia Annis, uh, the extremely wonderful uh, uh, scholar of ancient philosophy. It's called Ancient Eudaimonism and Modern Morality. And I believe it's in the Cambridge Companion to Ancient Ethics. Uh, I believe it's Cambridge. Um, hmm. So she starts off by comparing ancient and modern morality. Um, or ancient ethics and modern morality. And she does a great job of describing the starting point of ancient ethics and how it's different from modern moral reasoning. Ancient ethics starts with the idea, you sit down and say, oh crap, I'm, you wake up one day and say, crap, I'm living my life and I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing, <laughs> essentially. Um, and so a lot of ancient ethics is sitting down and thinking about why you, what you want to get out of life and how to get there, applying reasoning to doing that. And ancient schools came up with different answers to this, but they all kind of sat down and thought about it and they all agreed that you have one life to live. And if you don't think about this question, your implicit philosophy of life is just, you know, whatever the world throws at me, I guess I'll handle, you know, the boss tells me to do this thing, I'm gonna do this thing, I'm in this job because I want money and then, oh, somebody else wants my attention. But what that does is it pings you around from thing to thing. It has other people in control of your life and other external circumstances. You don't know where you're going. In Seneca's words, you don't know which port is favorable if you, ha um, if you haven't mapped it out in the first place. Um, so, mm. this, so you need to kind of know where Oh, no, actually, no wind is favorable if you don't know what port you're going to. So um, it's important to know where you want to go. But there are lots of ways to think about that. But you could think about it in, quite frankly, crappy ways. You could say, hmm, well, what does the world expect of me? Hmm, well, what does... Uh, what are my implicit ex expectations? What makes things more comfortable? Well, you're presuming comfort there. So you need to think things through clearly. And so finally circling back again to the question you asked, I would say that I would recommend that the first thing people do if they want to start practicing Stoicism is to derive it, <laughs> to sit yeah. down and say, well, the Stoics believe these things, but they didn't just say, virtue is the only good, believe it or you're out, um, because it's one of our catechisms. Um, they actually sat down and had an extended argument for why virtue was good. You should understand that argument, maybe try to pick it apart and use it using good reasoning skills, not like pick it apart saying, oh, I don't like that because then I don't get to have fun. Um, okay, well, how do you know what, what you like? Like, are your implicit is your implicit philosophy then I should pursue whatever I like? Is that really the philosophy you want? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but how would mm. you know? If you can't answer that question, I would recommend people learn how to. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's brilliant, and and I think I, I'd love to have this discussion around around how we actually come to know, right? Because saying that we we are going to a certain place implies that we're going from some other place, right? Or it implies that there is uh, some base uh, base camp, you might say, for what we have that we're going from, or. It, I guess the way I describe this is for me personally on my, my, you might call it my stoic journey. I hate saying journey cause it's the cheesiest word ever. But um, you know, for me uh, I've been learning stoicism for about, you know, maybe five, six years. And I think that I've experienced the most benefit from this philosophy within the past three or four months, simply by moving away from focusing so much on the, yeah, on the discipline side of things so much on the, uh, you know, like you've got to go out there and change yourself quickly and, and starting to focus on, okay, maybe there are some things that I need to understand about the world before I jump into trying to understand what I am. Right. And so trying to be a real student of life, looking at the world, looking at nature, looking at where we are, you might say the cosmos, right. And, and, and trying to fully understand to the best of my reasoning capacities, uh, what all of this is. And then, when you understand what all of this is, that's when the Stoics really came to conclude about what our unique virtues as human beings are, right? Because they kind of said, well, everything else seems to have its own unique virtues that make it what it is within the universe, the cosmos. 
So what are our unique virtues? What, what do you think the importance is there for people to first understand the world around them, that physics element of, of stoicism um, before they first, or before they jump in and try to understand themselves? Yeah, I think that they, I think, there's definitely room for argument. In fact, there was argument in the ancient school, uh, the ancient uh, historian of philosophy, Diogenes Laertes, specifically lays this out in book seven of uh, his uh, his uh, Lives of Eminent Philosophers, where he talks about the Stoic school. And some of them said, uh, argued what of the three philosophical topics should be taught first, whether it's physics, whether it's logic, whether it's ethics, or, or maybe some of them shouldn't be taught at all. So they actually argued a lot about this themselves. So there's room for disagreement. And I don't think there's enough knowledge to know whether there's one set way. I personally would approach it by learning logic and reasoning first, because I think that is foremost. How do you know, how would you know whether you know anything about the world around you unless you have some reliable reasoning to, on which to rely. But once mm. you get there, I probably the world around oneself as well as oneself concurrently works like studying a little bit of modern psychology studying a little bit of sociology studying a little bit of physics and theology um and coming up with your own viewpoints on that because all of those do feed into some degree into how one wants to live one's life um there's an excellent reason why a christian would do what they do or especially or a calvinist would want to do what they do except they're predetermined so they can't really choose um but but uh maybe an arian uh so um so there's excellent reasons for like, you know, praying and doing all that stuff. If you believe that there is a God, there's an excellent reason not to do that if you have come to the conclusion that you don't. So laying out some of these big questions ahead of time is definitely useful. And I think that they kind of go concurrently. Hmm. And, and, you know, now that you've said that, it kind of makes me think, yeah, like I'm getting a lot of benefit of, benefit from it now, but this is after a lot of study about the way that the Stoics actually thought and the way that they came to these decisions. So it's almost as if I have kind of done that study of, of the, the, the logic, no, not that I have any sort of superior knowledge over anyone, but you know, I've learned how the Stoics think and how they approach these problems. And, and so I have kind of gone the backwards route like you would suggest. Right. Um, and, and I guess, uh, one one area that I really want to discuss with you, uh, which which I think could be okay. The only reason I'm asking this is because I'm obsessed with the idea at the moment of aligning with nature. I'm really trying to grasp fully what this means and 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 what it means for for our lives. Right? How do you see the the goal of aligning with nature? Because from Zeno, that was the ultimate goal, right? The agreement with nature. What does that mean to you? Um. So I would roughly say, I think Zeno's view, I mean, which was fleshed out later by his next, the next two heads of the Stoa, um, I think it's pretty coherent, but also something that I learned recently through reading uh, through Cicero in book one of the academics, um, Cicero, through the voice of his friend Varro, gives a kind of history of Hellenistic philosophy, starting with Socrates and then moving through Plato, Aristotle, and the Stoics. And then he starts to defend uh, the new academy, his uh, uh, academic skepticism, but then the book unfortunately gets cut off. We lost the rest of it, but he at least gets through the Stoics. Um, and one of the things that I learned, at least through Cicero's depiction of it, is this living according to nature thing is actually something that a lot of the other schools uh, held to too. They all thought of it in this way. And I think it's kind of clear. I mean, it's, it's clear in a lot of them. Uh, I think it's most clear if you take a look at the Epicureans. Um, the Epicureans were kind of wanted to kind of live according to nature to some degree too. And a lot of their practice depends on thinking about what, uh, what desires are quote unquote natural or not. Um, and the goal of the Epicurean training is to uh, try to whittle one's desire set down to just focus on um, natural and necessary desires um, and to put others to the side or only pick them up very lightly if the opportunity presents itself. Um, but the Epicureans argued through a psychological argument. So they argued sort of from what we would call physics nowadays, um, or back then they would call physics, um, is that we are have a natural little meter built into our head to say what's healthy for us as humans and what's not. And that's called pleasure and pain. And it, they actually thought um, so much of this hedone, the, the hedonistic component, that they um, elevated hedone to a criterion of truth. They believe that you, the proposition X is good can only be true if 
you get pleasure from it. And that's because nature built this that way. And so an Epicurean may come along and say like, yeah, you Stoics say you're living according to nature, but sometimes you choose things that are painful um, and even painful they don't come to pleasure down the road. Like, yeah, we're rational and we can think things through and give, give a little pain right now for more pleasure down the road. But you guys sometimes even say that's not useful. So you say you're living according to nature, but you're ignoring this thing built in our head, this meter that nature gifted us with about what's good for us and what's not. Um, and so in terms of living according to nature, it involves taking a look at kind of how we work situated in the world um, but you could come to different conclusions. And again, I would fall back on the importance of logic for this, because if you're thinking to yourself right now, wow, Greg, you just gave a great explanation of Epicureanism. I'm going to be an Epicurean now. I'd be curious if I then explained like um, another point of view in, in an equally convincing matter, whether you then switch sides. And if you fluctuate back and forth based on what sounds convincing or good without being able to clearly see what makes things true or false, then I, th I would suggest then more logic and more study of reason may be suitable. Hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's brilliant. I, I really appreciate you elaborating on that because I've just been really trying to get to the bottom of what it means. And you said something that has cleared something up for me because the way I've kind of come to somewhat understand it is just like you said, there's kind of like a biological inbuilt system that can teach us uh, if we listen to it, you know, what would be good and what would be bad uh, for us. And and I, I kind of saw that as a kind of like a biological compass and, and it, it wouldn't make sense that everything on this planet or everything in the universe tends to have that biological compass that just tells it what it is and what it does, but we wouldn't have that as human beings. But the words that you used, which helped me to clear this up is pain and pleasure, right? Like that's, that's our compass that, that can teach us the, the right direction to go if we actually listen. But, According to the Epicureans, the Stoics yeah. would disagree with that. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I and I guess I guess um, the the place where I get slightly confused is things like, uh, and it, it gets into a kind of weird realm where you know it, it's hard to discuss this sort of stuff. But things like inspiration, you know, like like what is that sort of like, like what is that to us, um, and how does that act, enact with our lives? Is that some kind of uh, premeditated pleasure or premeditated pain where we, we feel a certain thing about something that could happen, uh, whether we should move towards it or not. Do you ever think about those sorts of things and how that relates to our aligning with nature? Yeah, to some degree. Um, there is, uh, so one of the things that I would think, it, it didn't really exist, well, it sort of existed in ancient philosophy, but one area of modern philosophy that would probably un fall under stoic training of logic nowadays would be philosophy of language. And um, there is a third generation behavior therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy, whose underlying theory is a behaviorist theory of language called relational frame theory. And there's some great papers on it. It's very complicated and hard to understand in its detail, but at its basics, it kind of says that, um, you know, the words that we use are kind of all, our brains kind of work in an interrelated mesh. And sometimes we trick ourselves with words and start telling ourselves stories that lead us down paths that are ultimately painful. And we have this great capacity for abstract reasoning. But when we start imagining futures in which we believe we're suffering in some way, we can kind of live that hell in the present. And this is a double-edged sword. One of the goals of acceptance and commitment therapy, and probably I would also say a goal of stoicism, uh, is to kind of tame this beast of this, or this dull, this edge of the double-edged sword a bit to not be able to worry so much about the future. And Stoicism, acceptance and commitment therapy has its own ways to do this. Um, Stoicism does as well in terms of catching impressions, saying you're just an impression, hold up a minute. Um, and Donald Robertson, who has a lot of training in psychology, would probably argue that that's the, one of the more efficacious parts of Stoicism is this ability to see a thought as a thought, but not as reality. Because if we fool ourselves into thinking in reality, then we're buying into something that's not really literally present and the Stoics, the ancient Stoics would also frown upon that. Um, mm. So yeah, that's what I have to say about that. Yeah. Awesome. No, I appreciate that. And uh, you look, I guess this has just been such a great conversation, Greg. I've really enjoyed this. And I think you've gone into great detail about so many of these different topics that we're trying to understand here. 
Um, and I want to be respectful of your time, but if there was anything else that you could share with the audience about maybe some disciplines or some, I, I guess, the way that they should be viewing stoicism that would be most helpful for their lives, what would be one more thing that you'd share with the audience before we uh, head off? Uh, I would recommend that I would take times of crisis like like around COVID-19 as well as in general. I, I Philosophies of life are often turned to in times of crisis. I mean, I've done that myself and that's a motivation for a lot of people. But in a sense, they act more as vaccines than antibiotics. Mm. Um, they work best when you think clearly, when things are okay and you're comfortable at first, and you think clearly about how you should live your life and convince yourself intellectually, like, wow, maybe I should actually do this thing instead. Then you kind of get excited about it, and then you go practice it while things are still going okay. And then if crap happens, then it tends to be effective. If things are going awry in one's life right now, it may be not the right time to look for philosophy and to turn to more like traditional empirical methods like therapy uh, is that's the point of therapy is to cure a psychological ailment that is currently ongoing. And so after that occurs, then maybe say, you know, the way I'm valuing things right now led me to this crisis in the past. I wonder if there are better ways. And instead of espousing a specific exercise for stoicism, I would instead suggest people to use some adversity as motivation to explore the question. Because I don't want to give answers and say, oh, well, use stoicism. See you later. Like, that's the right answer. Um, yeah. You get an A plus because you circled the correct box on the multiple <laughs> choice test. Um, instead, I think people should learn how to think clearly about the question and get curious about the question. And if they do that, you're probably going to come to an answer that you are more motivated to work on and will work for you even better down the road. So that's what I would leave you with. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's a great place to, to just leave this discussion, right? Because so many people see philosophy as almost like it, we, they might not say that they see it like this, but you see them saying it like this as almost like a bandaid in times of need. Right. And that's not what it is. And even Seneca said, you know, look for inspiration to the soldier who every single day is disciplining himself, you know, making sure that he's prepared so that if and when something happens in the future, he can be prepared for it. It's not something that you prepare for on the day of the exam. Right. Exactly. Um, and so I just, yeah, thank you for leaving it like that. Cause that's so important for people to recognize, but uh, Greg, I'm going to put all the links to where people can get your books that you've done with Massimo, where can people can uh, find you online. Um, and I really appreciate the conversation today. Thank you for the invite. I appreciate you having me on. Okay. So there you have it. My interview with Gregory Lopez and Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show again. That was uh, seriously just uh, such a great conversation, such an honest uh, and, and really thoughtful depiction of stoic logic. And I got so much out of that. And, uh, and I'm sure that the audience did as well, you guys out there listening. So uh, once again, guys, reach out to Greg, let him know how much you appreciated him coming on the show. We want to have him back again and again, uh, so that we can get as much information out of that mind as possible. But uh, all of the links to where you can find him online are in the show notes. So make sure you head there. And uh, guys, I'll I'll talk to you next time. But until then, I hope that this episode has helped you on your rise to the good life. Ciao. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to stay up to date with the Practical Stoic community and everything to do with this podcast, then just go to my website, simonjedrew.com and subscribe to the Practical Stoic Weekly, a newsletter that I send out every week with updates and all sorts of great Stoic insights. You can also find me everywhere online by searching Simon J.E. Drew. See you next time.